Amen. Amen, Jesus. All right, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And as we talked about, the subtitle of this is, Who is he and why don't we know him so well? Because an amazing, it's an amazing truism, especially in evangelicalism this, uh, nowadays, that we, that we we think we know God, we, we like to know God, we want to spend time with God, and yet there's a whole part of the, tr the Trinity that we just we struggle with, we, we don't feel so connected to. So last time we talked about the Holy Spirit before Pentecost, because we tend to associate, especially as Christians, we tend to associate the Holy Spirit with Pentecost and stuff what happened at Pentecost. But he was very, very involved with things long before Pentecost. All throughout the Old Testament, right? What were some of the things that you remember that we talked about in the last couple of weeks of stuff that the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament? Stuff before Pentecost. He was there in creation. There was that. There was that whole there was that whole in the first couple of verses of Genesis, there was that whole breathing life into us as human beings thing. What else? And he certainly sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And came upon him. Uh-huh. He um, was with the, the craftsman in the wilderness. He also was the one who uh, intervened in the making of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that craftsman thing, we're talking about like in Exodus, that, he, that, he, that the Holy Spirit came upon some of these craftsmen, gave them abilities to work with stuff like metal and wood and things, he also gave David the layout of, of the tabernacle temple uh, kind of thing. So he gave he gave Moses the tabernacle. All right, uh, and and then yes, he intervened with with Balaam that when Balaam was paid to curse the Israelites, the Holy Spirit said, "Yeah, no," and give Balaam at least a little bit of credit that he actually was sensitive to the Spirit and said, "I can't not say this." Anything else? always has stuff to go with. There's a whole other line that, that we talked about from from like Judges and, and, the, and the Prophets where you said, the Holy Spirit is behind came upon, them. came upon them and they brought about justice. They killed people. They ripped lions apart and things. The Holy Spirit is not just an inspirer or, or just uh, tossing out bits of knowledge or even just breathing life. The Holy Spirit also gives power to accomplish specific physical things to say, you know, you're going to be stronger than you should be. You're going to be able to defeat foes. You, ultimately, the Messiah is going to come and is going to be a force of justice in this world, whether you like it or not. And there will be a great and dreadful day of the Lord that the, that the prophets talk about. So it's just like, he's, he's really involved with a lot of different things in the Old Testament. Do me a favor and describe what the church is like prior to Pentecost. After, after the resurrection, after, after Jesus died and rose again, but before Pentecost, what's the church like? I agree. Well, I feel really dumb. Is the verse where it's like they were meeting together daily, the church was increasing daily? Is that before or after Pentecost? After. So is this the point where they're hiding in a room? See, it's a little nebulous, isn't it? I mean, all you guys are like Bible reading people, and it's all like, uh, ah. 
the hiding in the upper room thing, that was more between his death and resurrection, right? Because he isn't because he appeared to them while they were up in the upper room. But yeah, this is this is a time where there there it, it is a little nebulous as to what's going on. Do you remember how many of them there were at this time? How many people? In the church. Well, there were 11 disciples. There were 11 disciples. I'm saying there were at least followers. About 120. Yeah. She, I know. She was looking at her Bible and she said it. She had this big, kind of sheepish grin on her face. 120. <laughs> all right, all right. Let me ask you this since this is a class on the Holy Spirit. How actively involved was the Holy Spirit with things between Easter morning and Pentecost? No, don't look at your Bible. Okay, that sounds like that sounds like you're like it's a Holy Spirit class. So surely, seriously, Jesus. how involved was he? What was he doing? What did you, what does the Bible say? I couldn't tell you because you can't look at it right now. I just want to know what the Bible says. Okay, do me a favor. Somebody read me Acts one, one and two. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to be a apostasy. How actively does Dr. Luke seem to think the Holy Spirit was post-resurrection, pre-Pentecost? Okay, let me ask you more pointedly. Be honest. How many of you have never really noticed that detail in verse 2? Good, it's unanimous. Okay. What was, what was Jesus doing and what was the Holy Spirit doing? Post-resurrection, pre-Pentecost? Yeah, Jesus is giving instructions and he's doing it through the Holy Spirit. So how actively involved is the Holy Spirit in all this kind of stuff? Yeah, both Dr. Luke and Peter seem to think he's very involved, right? But we, we tend to think, well, Jesus was involved. Jesus reappeared and Jesus was talking to them and Jesus was sharing his Jesus knowledge and saying, someday you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be active after I leave, right? No, that's what he was saying before he died, that eventually you'll get the Holy Spirit. That's just, okay, and this is why I, spent, I want to spend this moment, just for a second, and talk about some of that. Jesus does say, oh, the Holy Spirit will come in power here soon. But that whole, the Holy Spirit will come eventually, and you'll have a relationship with him thing, that discussion was before he died. It's not that... It's not that Jesus says, oh, I'm still here, so the Holy Spirit isn't active. We have this bizarre viewpoint somehow in, in, uh, in the church where sometimes we, we, whether we genuinely think it or we just tacitly think it, we think Jesus was here, and then Jesus is gone, and the Holy Spirit comes. You know, like they, they can't both be in the room at the same time. You know, Jesus is doing stuff, and then once he's out of the picture, then the Holy Spirit is doing stuff. Is that what you see in verses 1 and 2 of Acts? God only has one avatar at a time. There's God the Father in the Old Testament, there's Jesus in the Gospels, and then after that there's the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the way people tacitly tend to think about how God works a lot of times? And that is so not what we see actually going on in Scripture. 
We see God the Father doing stuff all over the place in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit all over the place in the Old Testament. We see Jesus being spoken to by God the Father with the Holy Spirit descending on him at his baptism. We see Jesus speaking through the Holy Spirit in the first couple verses of Acts. It's a whole trinity that's constantly interacting with one another. So why does the Holy Spirit keep slipping under our radar? Why does it work like that? We've talked about this a little bit where we say, well, it's hard for us to picture him, to visualize him, as opposed to visualizing the Father, because the Bible describes God the Father physically, right? No. Other than sitting on a throne, or having wings under which we, we gather. I mean, no. We're not given physical descriptions of him. But... Yes, he's got a big copper toe. Well, there's a description where his foot is like, like it describes his toes, and, and they're huge. Um, and I, I know that that, I just, I just have this mental picture of are you his big toe. <laughs> Actually, there was a whole discussion that we had in college about God's big toe, uh-huh. um, that you might be conflating with descriptions that we get in Daniel and Revelation of, uh, actually more that... That, that Christ image of, of, of uh, post-apocalypse kind of thing. But anyway, it's, okay, it, can we go back to this? Why are we called Christians rather than Yahweh's or spirit of Because we're called the Christ-like. Yes. Aren't we called to live in the spirit, though? Aren't we called to follow God? Why do you think in Antioch people were first being called Christians, as opposed to Spiritites or Yahwehists. Well, the other Jewish people would also believe in the Holy Spirit and Yahweh. Right. But Jesus Christ was the deciding factor of whether you're Jewish or Christian. Sort of. Although those first Christians yeah. were, were Jewish. But I mean, whether you're just Jewish or Jewish Christians or non-Jewish Christians, etc. The Christ part, the fact that you actually believe the Messiah you've been waiting for actually did come. I mean, at first, that was that was the main difference, isn't it? It's like, well, we believe everything you believe, except you think the Messiah is coming and we think he just came. That's the fundamental difference. So here, I, I understand that in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I you know, wanted to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. I get that. But what potential dangers are there with being so focused on Christ that we might tacitly marginalize the Father or the Spirit? We simplify our faith in part because we simplify the relationship. We say, I want to live like Christ. I like Jesus. Jesus died for me. Oh, which is great. That's all excellent. That's wonderful. And yet, we, 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 when, we, when we do that, sometimes we can, we can just kind of tacitly marginalize the Father. We think of him as sitting on his throne, but we have a relationship with Jesus. And we definitely can marginalize the Spirit that is constantly, he's constantly involved in everything that everybody else is doing as part, of the, as part of the Trinity, just like your spirit is also involved with your mind and your body and your volition. It's all you, right? It's not like, well, there's Alex, 
And there's Alex's, Alex's heart, his emotions, his mind, his thought processes. But his spirit is something totally different. Disconnected to, from all the rest of that. I'm not Gnostic. No, I, I see this is all part of who he is. I like Alex's right eye, but not his left eye. I have no connection with his left eye. Just his right eye. Well, that's ridiculous. It's all part of who he is. Same way with God, this is all part of it. If we so focus on our relationship with Christ that we have no relationship to the Holy Spirit living within us, or that Paul even refers to as the Spirit of Christ living within us, we go, no, I'm focused on the bearded image of Christ I have, not just the Spirit of Christ. Then we compartmentalize, we simplify, because it's easier for us to control what that does and how we think of it. You think that's why also God tries not to have any images of himself? Ah, well, that is part of what, if you remember when we went through the history class, part of what those iconoclasts were all about. They're like, any time you try to make a mental picture of God, you simplify and compartmentalize him. You control your mental image of God. They took that maybe a little far, saying, burn all the images. You're an evil person if you ever try to do And yet, I get the point. Anytime you try to do that, yes, you are you are compartmentalizing to the point where that becomes your God, that mental image becomes your God, instead of the actual one. All right, let's continue on. Somebody read me Acts 1, 4 through 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, what would they have expected by that? They're going to learn that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, right? They were probably clueless. Possibly qu quite clueless. I'm going to ask my question again, because I want to hear your reaction. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, right? No. Absolutely not. Hadn't he already breathed the Holy Spirit on them? Yes, they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon them in power. Are they going to receive the Holy Spirit? No, they already have the Holy Spirit, right? I understand. Again, it's hard for us to... We get lost in timelines. But it's really important to remember the timeline. Because he's not saying, in a few days, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. If he had said that, they would have said, well, then what was that whole breathing on us thing? What, what was that back in the end of John? We got the Holy Spirit, didn't we? So, now I'm back to... Would they have said, oh, we're going to receive the Holy Spirit? He hasn't been around yet, but now he will be. No. So let's go back to, <laughs> dear Lord, please take care of wherever those guys are going. Um, go back to what Randy was saying. Maybe they go, I have no idea what to expect. Anybody else want to toss anything out? Come on in. <laughs> Anybody else want to toss out any suggestions? What they might have expected by that? Would they have had any knowledge of that? Well, what is baptism? What's that all about? Being immersed. Okay. So what the word literally means. Hmm? Alright, let's just stop there for a second. That's what the word literally means. So what might it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you ever received water before in your life? You just did. I just did. 
Okay, so what's the difference between having received some water and getting baptized in it? It's overwhelming. Literally. When you think of the overwhelming play, it's overwhelming. Okay, what else? What's the difference between having something and being immersed in it? Pardon me? Yeah. It is, which is why I actually put a picture there. It, it, it is an abstract concept, but he uses a very tangible thing of, of, of immersion. He's just like, you are overwhelmed in it. It touches every part of you. It, 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 it supersaturates you. It's filling you to overflowing. It's, however you want to look at this, it's dripping off of you. Actually, yes, even that becomes part of the analogy, isn't it? You don't jump out of the baptistry and no part of it dribbles off of you. You come out of the baptistry and you're still so covered with it, it can't help but splatter on everything else around you. Yeah? There's also, also an aspect of cleansing associated with water baptism. Yep. Um, obviously, it's part of the ablutions that you get when you're uh, uh, in, in, in Judaism and in Christianity where it's talking about cleansing your sins away or cleansing what you were before. Remember what baptism was in, in Judaism prior to John the Baptist? Well, it was becoming a Jew. That was part of it. Gentile, and it was an immersion. Like that. Absolutely. In fact, any Jewish synagogue still has a, an immersion baptistry in it. Uh, they're supposed to with natural flowing water. Anyway, but yes, it's supposed to be the last step from turning from a Gentile to a Jew. You're washing away what you were before something new comes up out. It's the last step from being a secular Jew to becoming a priest. You go into it, you come out this. It was, they had baptistries in front of the temple where you went in, you came out something different. There was this idea of washing away what was before, right? So there is a, a cleansing. But there's also this sense of what you were, you no longer are, right? Because it's magic water. No, 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 because of that statement of, you are washing away what you were before, which is why John the Baptist is like, it's a baptism of repentance. Not just a baptism of, I'm no longer a Gentile, I'm now a Jew. Not just a baptism of, I'm no longer a secular Jew, I'm now a priestly Jew. How would you like to be able to wash away all the sin that came before? Wouldn't you like to be able to repent of all that junk and wash that away and step out of the Jordan something different? And of course people say, yeah, but the Jordan doesn't actually take away my sins, right? But he was preparing the way for somebody who, who could actually take away the sins. But he's like, before we get there, wouldn't you like to be able to repent? Wouldn't you like to be able to get rid of all that junk? Kind of a powerful image. So, how does that relate to anything we've been talking about? When you talk about Jesus saying, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Relate that to being filled with the Spirit that we've talked about before. Relate that to what, we, what we've seen here about baptism, relate that. What did we say? What did Samuel say to, to New King Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 6? You're going to what? Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them, and be changed into another man. So help me out here. Jesus says, baptized in the Holy Spirit. On some levels, on some levels, they would have said, I don't know what that means, Right? But just the moment he uses the term baptized, what mental images would they have? Relate anything to any of the stuff I just listed. Yeah? The baptism of repentance by water. 
water is you know, kind of of the outward person. It's something that you're deciding to do, and, you know, uh, as of the outward body. But baptism of the spirit would then be baptism of your inner self. Ideally, what that baptism of repentance is supposed to be pointing to, right? What that outward thing is supposed to be speaking of. An in- My goodness, I start sounding like Augustine, don't I? It's an outward action that points to an inward work of God. Okay? What else? Any of the stuff I'm talking about here, what would baptism connect with them? All the references in the Old Testament Work the work of the Holy Spirit, and specifically, would they have understood if they had thought about it? And, and let's be fair, Peter in particular seems immersed with Scripture. I mean, you read First Peter; there's very few books in the New Testament, including Paul's books, that are as dense with Scripture references as First Peter. They're they're a little bit more oblique. I mean, he just he's just peppering everything with with nods back to the Old Testament. But Peter Peter knew his Bible. If they know that baptism is about saying that old person is left at the bottom of the baptistry and you come up out of the water, something new, something washed clean. And we know that when King Saul was given the Holy Spirit, he's supposed to be changed into a new person. And Jesus says, you've been baptized in water. You've been baptized from John the Baptist. But you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you're going to come up out of that baptism of the Holy Spirit, a changed person. Would they would they get that? Do you think? Would there at least be that association in some of them, possibly? Peter's brother is Andrew. Doubt that Peter would be immersed in the Bible and Andrew not. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. I really don't think this is a stretch to think that they can make that kind of connection. So, when any of them have heard anything like this, baptism in the Spirit. Have they heard this kind of verbiage before? Has anybody ever talked about that before? Yeah, the whole part of the Spirit will come upon And they t- use the term baptism? Uh, I'm going I'm to ask again. Have they heard the term baptism or being baptized with the Spirit before? Have they heard that phraseology before? John the Baptist. From Jesus. Well, John the Baptist, who said, I baptize you with water, and you'll Yeah. Didn't I just say that Andrew, at the very least, we got one disciple that we know was standing there when John the Baptist said, somebody read me Matthew 3, 11 through 12. Maybe we should do the round robin thingy again. I baptize you with So have they heard this term baptism in spirit before? Uh-huh. By the way, we're gonna do the round robin of reading scriptures, so we'll start with with Mark next. Yes, Randy, what were we gonna say? <clears throat> What I, you know, what I meant before that they were clueless is, yeah, they've heard the terminology, yeah. but they had no idea. What oh no! But they're going to have mental pictures yeah, of some things that had happened. But said, what is this going to do? So help me out here. From what John just said, what mental pictures might they have as to what's going to happen when 
the Messiah comes and will baptize you in spirit and in fire. And by fire, I mean... Yeah. Maybe fire will appear on our heads. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there will be fire. Okay, because remember, technically, this, this lesson is talking about the explosion of the Pentecost. Shh. Spoilers. But yes, they may go, well, something's going to be on fire at some point. But certainly, this is winnowing kind of stuff. This is burning up the, the chaff. Oh, yeah. What else? Anything else? What else is John pointing to here? That they may connect when Jesus says some of the same vernacular. Like, oh, wait. Anything? Okay, what... John doesn't just say he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He goes on to explain it. So what are they expecting when they hear about this? Jesus did tell a parable about the wheat and the tares as well. Okay. So would they be expecting that this is this is the time when all that's coming down? Probably. Would any of them listening to John at the time have heard any of that kind of language before? Or was this brand new teaching because it's New Testament stuff? <laughs> Any of that sound vaguely familiar to anybody? What had Isaiah been preaching back in Isaiah 4, 2 through 5? Mark. There is, you're on deck. Either Barry, it doesn't matter, we're just going to go through. Okay. <laughs> Two through five. And the day of the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all, over all the glory will be a canopy. So, do you hear like washing away filth and spirit and fire going on there? In what context? What's Isaiah getting at? How would you summarize? You're a Jew who's familiar with Isaiah 4. What would you summarize that Isaiah is talking about there? Yeah, there's that, especially at the end where he's talking about that, there's that, that sense of fire at night, pillar of smoke during the day, that sort of thing. But there's this definite, clear, you can see it, really well presence of God. So, help me out. What might people have been expecting when they hear? I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with Isaiah, this, God will come, and he will make things right. And he will come with fire, and he will change things, and he will wash away your filth, and he will be a presence there, and he will be with his people like, like it was... In Exodus, but you know, in a really good way. And John says, "Oh, there will come a time where the guy next behind me, the, the next guy down the pipe, will be bringing about this baptism in, in a, a, a spirit and a fire, and it will be a winnowing fork, and 
turn up the chaff and make things right. And Jesus says, what in Acts 1, 4 through 5? What was it that he said in Acts 1, 4 through 5? And what? Okay. After, after John has said, he's going to come and baptize you with the Spirit and fire, and there will be judgment and all this kind of stuff, and Jesus says, a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what, uh, what might your disciple, what would you be expecting? Do you have any expectations? Yeah, it sounds like Jesus was supposed to be the conquering king, and that didn't quite work out the way they thought. Um, he was still, but now, now he's coming back as the conquering king. Doesn't it sound kind of like that? Well, if you, what's this verbiage? The next verse in Acts, they, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Do you understand the context of that question now? I mean, because, I mean, all of us go, well, I mean, they kind of expect, do you understand the immediate context of that question now? He's like, baptism of the Holy Spirit is coming, and they immediately jump to, so now is where you're going to burn up the chaff. Now is where you're going to wash away all the filth. Now is the time when there's going to be fire and smoke, and now is the time when you will live with your people. Now, your kingdom's coming now, right? You, that's the immediate context of it, isn't it? Have you thought about it like that? That that was the immediate context of this? That when he said, you'll be baptized in the Spirit, that their minds just automatically jump to every association they have with that going, so you're going to come upon the world in power and change everything. To which he says, sort of. <laughs> well, but, but think about it. He's just like, that's exactly kind of what I'm going to do, kind of, sort of, exactly. My kingdom going to come in power? Yes. Going to change the world? Yes. With fire? Yes. And the spirit? Yes. Cool, just like Isaiah. Yes and no. It's kind of hard to distinguish the final times too. It is. And it's, it's a little easier for us 2,000 years later going, well, what they didn't know. If you read later, they didn't have that going there. They're just going from what they knew up to that point, right? So it makes total sense that they go, um, No. At the same time, it talks about pouring out my spirit yep. more than once in the prophets. And it associates it with wonders and signs. It associates it with being changed into a new person. So there's just a lot of similarities. It's just don't use the exact word. They don't use that exact word. It's like a water. There's this, this deluge of, of, and whether you see it as a washing or an infilling of life, I mean, what happens in Ezekiel? It's a valley of dry bones, and God breathe his spirit of life into it, sort of thing, right? It's constantly in the Old Testament, there's a sense of this this immersion in the spirit that changes people and changes things. And we're specifically told in the Old Testament multiple times where people are filled with the spirit punctiliarly, you know, at that moment, filled with the spirit to do something, and then a couple moments later, they are not necessarily filled with the spirit. Somebody read me verses 7 and 8. Whatever's next. Emily. Oh. 
That's one, seven, and eight. I'm sorry. That's okay. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> Somehow God put Sunday mornings in the mornings, and it, it, it throws me. Um, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So how does Jesus respond to their question? Is, is this the time? Is the, is the kingdom coming right now? How does he respond? At most pointedly, how does he respond 180 degrees from what they were anticipating? Okay. Is this the time? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. What else, though? He does give them some details. Is this the time when, what did he say in verse 6? Is this the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom in this? Um, what's you? You. There's a pronoun there. You are going to restore the king? You are going to do this? What's the pronoun that he uses in 7 and 8? You. Are you going to? <laughs> You're going to. Right? So what does he say? How does he actually respond? Other than we can't just, you just said you. Okay, yeah, what do I mean by that? Flesh that out. How does he respond to the question? Is this the time when you're going to go change all the stuff around me? No. This is the time when I'm going to change you. And then you're going to go around and change all the stuff around you. Yeah? This all seems really parallel to the church's thoughts and ideas about the end times. Like, we don't know the time. Oh. You know? And we're only going off of what we can read here. Mm -hmm. we, we come up with lots of ideas and thoughts based on that. Apache helicopter. It could be completely <laughs> different from anything. It probably is. tidbits of information that we're given in scripture, but what I get a tickle out of is Paul's a lot smarter than me. Uh, John is a lot closer to the Lord than I would ever be. Jesus, it's Jesus. And all three of them tossed in some derivation of I don't know. Right? Jesus, when's it going to happen? I don't know. I specifically don't know. Didn't these Preach that before we're ready. Paul going, it's, uh, what's the resurrected body going to be like? Um, um, I, I don't know. It's going to be weird, right? John going, it was like a scroll that I ate. You know, yeah. All of them, to varying degrees, are like, I am extremely bright. I am extremely godly. I am extremely spiritually minded. I don't know how to explain this to you. And then we come along and go, I know exactly how to explain it. I know exactly when Christ is coming. It's going to be Tuesday, and he's going to come like this. He's, got, he's going to have a white car, and the license plate will be because, because 2 Thessalonians is very clear. And he's like, really? So I get a tickle out of that in Scripture. If there is one standard constant to the description of the end times, it's if you think you've got it down, you're almost certainly wrong. You know, people will be going, no, it's now, it's now, it's now. And I go, well, if you think it's now, it probably isn't. 
So, yeah, it, it's, a lot of this comes down to you think you know what you're doing, but even, even we can sit here, we got a whole Bible in front of us. We've got searchable Bibles online. And God's like, yeah, trust me, you're, you're not going to have this figured out. But I'm going to give you enough clues that you can, you can be confident that you, you have the main points figured out. You, you know that this is coming. You know what's going to happen. And you know it enough that after it happens, everybody's going to go, <laughs> okay, yeah. But the idea of, I'm going to map it all out, not really. He's already said, I'm giving you my spirit, I'm giving you the kingdom to speak on my behalf and my ambassadors. And instead, a lot of people are just waiting for him. And he's very clear in his teaching, though, isn't he, that we will never do as great a things as he's done? <laughs> Wait, there's like a whole verse about that, isn't there? You're, you're going to do, you're going to do bigger things. Well, I can't do that. Yeah, even today we sit there and go, I'm just going to wait for him to come and sweep in and fix everything. In like major world issues, right? Let's just pray that Jesus fixes everything. Do we do that in not just major world issues? Like what? Anybody else can chime in? I don't know. Anything bad that we don't like, basically. Jesus, could you just come in and fix that? Especially people we don't like. Could you just fix Brian? Because I'm having trouble with him today. Um, <laughs> could you just fix my kid? Could you just fix her? Could you just fix him? Could you just fix this? Could you somehow give us this? Could you? Those prayers aren't bad. Well, maybe the fix Brian bear. But I mean, in general, the please, Lord, come in and help things and change things is not a bad prayer, right? But let's talk percentages. How, how much of a percentage of your prayer life when you're asking for things, is, dear God, please fix this external situation compared to what percentage of that prayer life is, dear God, please change my heart, change me, and use me, perhaps, to help change this situation. Not just make me somebody good enough to go change this, but no, 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 no. Through your Holy Spirit, use me as a conduit of your grace to those around me. What's the percentages? When you get up to the part of your prayer where you say, Dear Lord, please, how much of it is fix this external stuff versus how much of this is work in my heart today to change me today? I'm very conscious about this. And I would say, yeah, the, the majority of things that I just naturally fall into. Dear Lord, please help me with this. Please, please help a rock not fall on my head because it looks like it's going to fall on my head. Please make the rock somehow not fall on my head. And please work in Lucy. You know, that's please work in Lucy's heart and change Lucy into a different person with her with your Holy Spirit. And fill me with your Holy Spirit too. Have a great day, Lord. It's like, wait a minute. Why does it come so much more naturally to me to say, please work in Megan's dark, dark heart than it is for me to say, please work in my dark, dark heart? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, we still do this today. It's, Jesus is still going. No, um, Yes, but the opposite of how you're thinking I'm going to do that. So now what are they expecting to happen? You, you are going to be changed. You are going to be my witnesses. So now what are they expecting this is going to be? Remember what John said. Remember what Isaiah said. Now he's saying, 
you guys. So what else, what's it, what are they thinking? He just clarified. Oh, so this is the Isaiah time? This is the John time? This is when you're going to burn up the whole world and change things and bring about your kingdom? He's like, changing you guys. And then you're going to be my ambassadors. Probably. Um, and they may be very nervous. I know I am when he says, you have to be well, he made his point peculiar by leaving right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Think on that for a minute. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I got to do it this way. This this is unbreakable. Right. Is this when you're going to change the world? Is this is this when you're going to be you know bringing about your kingdom? <laughs> you are. Drop the mic. <laughs> Did he just leave? <laughs> Wait a minute, the last time this happened, he said, you know, pray that God finds somebody to go out and bring in their harvest. I'm sending you guys. Come back and let me know how that worked out. What do you mean? Go. What do you mean? I mean, John is winning because he's closest to the door. Go. Go out. Go do this. So yeah, this is this is unsettling, and not just. I mean, there's going to be extroverts that find this less unsettling than others. But even with extroverts, you sit there and you go, "I'm expecting you to go out and do the stuff you were expecting God to go out and do." Right? What's the significance to them that they're going to be witnesses to in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? There's a couple different ways of looking at this. Geographically, what's the significance? Where are they, by the way? At home in the neighborhood and around the world. Okay. At home in the neighborhood and around the world. All right, what else, just geographically? Yeah, think about that way. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and everywhere, right? These are also like, also like, Progressions of like Jerusalem, Judea, I don't want to read too much into the term Judea, because it would be, but that is technically like the Roman word for this area, so it's Roman occupied, but don't read too much into that, because they could just be using that, you could just be using that to describe it from their perspective, so you go, where you're at right now, the people that are your people near you, the half-breeds that, well, you've made a subculture of disliking, right? I mean, these are the people that, remember they got forcibly interbred by, by foreign powers. These are people that are only sort of you. By the way, you don't dislike anybody as much as you dislike people who are sort of like you. Right? You get frustrated with non-Christians, but you get really frustrated with Christians who are acting like non-Christians. You, know, you, you get really frustrated with people who do roughly the same things that you do, but not as well as you do. You get really frustrated with people like you, but not exactly like you. They hated the Samaritans. That's 
That's, I mean, that's why he picked a Samaritan as the, as the good guy in his parable. And then to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to all the people that, I don't know, say Jonah wanted to fry, right? So, what are they expecting here? What would you say is the significance here? How would they be hearing that? Yeah. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um. All right, maybe let's do it this way. What would that look like for us today? Be specific. I mean, you can take that. You can take that any of the ways that we just talked about. Give me some examples. What would that look like for us today? Hint: If you really want to get brownie points for talking, the easiest one is to talk about proximities, like physical places. Go. <laughs> What would this look like for us today? <laughs> Peoria first. Okay. Where you live for us might be Morton for you. It might be Peoria for yada yada. Groveland. What did you say? Um, yes. Fill in the blank. Um, physically, where you say, my home area doesn't require me to stretch myself very much. Judea, my people like me that are relatively easy for me to reach out to. Central Illinois, what have you. Samaria, fill in the blank of anybody you don't like in Illinois, physically. Anybody you feel disconnected with. Uh, your football rivals, whatever. And then the ends of the earth. You know, even as far as Georgia. Okay. Physically. Give me some examples of not just physically. What would this look like? <laughs> That's a good point. It's like, well, he didn't mention Egypt. He was like, there's no way you could sit there and go, well, not those people, Jonah. You know, no, you, there's everybody. This encompasses everybody. Let's be specific, though. What, who might this encompass sociologically or spiritually or emotionally to you, to us, to people, people other than you? Yes? Well, even though we would say that somebody's... Okay, so even though it's in the context of preaching the gospel, if you just take it in terms of, you know, sharing God's message generically, um, you can say, you know, people that are part of the covenant and Protestants, and Catholics, and even all religions. Okay. And, by the way, unplug those and stick any other verticals in there. Instead of Catholics, it could be Baptists. Instead of Baptists, it could be Lutherans, or maybe Lutherans are who you are, and it's, it's, it's Protestants over here. Maybe it's, 
Uh, there's a gazillion different ways that you can take that. It's all in different, different plug-in, different things. What else? I don't know. Are there people that uh, that traditionally Christians might struggle with? Yeah. Those, uh, there's like the people that you uh, like surround yourself with, the people that you that are like, around where. Uh, I mean, I guess this is almost a year, but it's like around where you live uh, that you like your your friends, um, and then there's also the people that are almost like you that you really can't stand, and then. You know who I can't stand most of all? All those hateful people who can't stand other people. I hate those guys. All those haters, just hate them. I wish the world would just get rid of them. Because I'm not a hater. Hint. There's always somebody that you can plug into that variable of being Samaritans in your life, right? You might sit there and go, I don't, I don't hate gays and lesbians. I embrace them. I don't, I don't hate... Uh, liberal Christians. I don't hate conservative Christians. I don't hate... You know who I hate? I hate intolerant people. That's the only people I hate. You know, congratulations, you found your Samaritans, haven't you? All those intolerant Christians. Congratulations. There are always going to be people that you can go, oh, oh, those people. Congratulations, Samaritan. Now, everything we've just said there, really good, absolutely right, kind of misses the point, though, too. Because he isn't saying the easy people, the sort of easy people, the really hard people, and this is really going to take some time and effort. Is he saying that? Yep. Is he saying just that? Nope. Because help me out here. Did he ever say where a prophet has the biggest problem? In his hometown. So when he says, right where you're at, is he saying, you know, the easy one? Not necessarily. The place where you're, like, hiding. Judea, the place where people know you by your accent, right? Samaria, the people that don't like them. The ends of the earth, the people you don't even know, you just heard that they they talk funny and it would require effort for you to get to. You know, wait, all those can be complicated, can they? Is it easier for you to reach the person literally next door to you or harder emotionally for you to reach the person literally next door to you? Well, if it goes badly, you can't get away from it. <laughs> so do you actually sometimes find yourself having more trepidation trying to reach out to a family member or to your physical neighbor than you do somebody that's on a bus that you'll never see again? Yeah. What were you going to say? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, oh well, there, well, there was the idea of like getting kicked out of synagogues. Uh -huh. you know, and like, well, I guess we better go talk to the Gentiles because... None of, none of our people will, will listen, you know, so there's that idea. On the plus side, Paul was reaching out to Gentiles before they officially got kicked out of the synagogues. But, yeah, I mean, there's just like, our own people just went, on us. Um, I'm glad that God has already said, there is nothing unclean that I've made here in terms of, of where I want you to move. Peter, go, go reach out to that guy who's a, not a Jew. Paul, don't, don't be so worried about this kind of stuff. Be aware, aware be, be conscious of this so that you can reach your brothers and sisters in Judaism, but don't be caught up on, don't eat, don't touch, don't do. The only other thing that's kind of interesting is the fact that these, the first ones he lists, he doesn't like continue a list, but the first ones he lists, they have a cultural understanding of mm -hmm. who these people are mm -hmm. versus the, all the ends of the earth. So 
uh, gives them something to at least grasp at first because they understand. Sure. Okay. Jerusalem, everybody in Jerusalem knows the temple. Judea, everybody in Judea should know the temple, but not everybody in Judea has been at the temple, even though they're supposed to be, right? Samaria, the Samaritans, yeah, they believe in Yahweh, but, you know, only the Pentateuch. They, they, don't, they don't do the rest of this stuff. Really. Cleveland? Do, do they even speak Greek like we do? Or Paul, you know, my family, we spoke Hebrew. Just saying. Yeah. But that's the thing is, there is that layers of understanding. This is going to be more complicated, so you're going to hit more barriers and fewer barriers. You're going to hit more barriers of people who just don't understand what you're talking about and fewer preconceptions about the stuff that you're talking about. Less things you have to unteach, more things you have to teach. So which is easier? Thinking that it's just easier is probably the wrong way of looking at what Jesus is saying here. Because each of these has their own issues, their own conundrums. What he's getting at is, is there any way that you can figure out breaking down this can you think about people who, with varying degrees of understanding? Can you think about people in proximity? Can you think about people you do and don't like? Can you be people? All of these. Is there any demarcation that you can have about who you're going to reach out to? Reach out to all those. So I understand that first way that we were looking, we're like, oh, who's your Samaritans? That is a totally legit way of looking at it. But unfortunately in churches, that's the way we usually stop. We, we talk about that and then we end there. You know, there's so many layers of what he's getting at here. Is that still true of us today? Do we do we still have this same mission? I, I would say we do. I would absolutely say that we do, in all of this level of complexity. Somebody read me, still in Acts 1, verses 15 to 17 and verse 20. Acts 1, 15 to 17 and verse 20. verse 20. At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So how connected was the work of the Spirit? How connected is he with the church, and the work of the church, does Peter think? How does Peter phrase this? What, how does he frame this? What does he say about the Spirit here? The Scripture is fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago yeah. through David. So, the Holy Spirit talked about Judas. The Holy Spirit talked about what we were supposed to do about Judas. The Holy Spirit talked through David. How connected is the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church, before Pentecost, does Peter think? And quite sovereignly, right? Hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago, whatever, 800 years ago, the Spirit told us all about all this stuff and what we should do. And again, we start seeing Peter's very inundated with Scripture. He knows his Bible. 
How does that relate to saying how Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 12? What does he say in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 12? something to them in terms of what the Holy Spirit does? Oh yeah, they would have heard that back in 1 Samuel 10, right? Over and over the idea of you go down one thing, you come up a changed human being. And amazingly, amazing, the largest percentage of my prayers are still God, please change Mark. There's a lot of that. Full disclosure, there's a lot of that. So, how would you apply this? How would you actually apply this in your life, what we've been talking about today? What would you say? 
Is there an application, or do you go, yeah, that's interesting, first century, that little narrow band of seven weeks bef between his resurrection and Pentecost, that that's when the Holy Spirit did this interesting stuff. Move on, let's get to the tongues of fire. I think um, I need just to realize personally that my natural default is to think that the Spirit came. The Spirit was there, not as active personally, and then Jesus came, and then the Spirit was active personally. And I, I, that's my natural default. That's why I grew up. It's hard for me to think differently on that one. But yeah, it's proof all throughout Scripture that that's not the case. And I'm not even pulling up the hidden verses. They were hidden to you somehow. You've read Acts 1, 1 to 2. And when I said, be honest, for whom... Who is it here that has never really noticed what was going on in verse 2? And everybody raised their hands going, I've read those verses a gazillion times and I've never noticed that Jesus was preaching through the Holy Spirit. It's not hidden. It's sitting right there. But yes, we're not talking about, well, the Holy Spirit sporadically did stuff in the Old Testament and then Jesus came and the Holy Spirit did nothing. And then Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came and that's when he was active. You go, Nothing in Scripture says anything about that kind of stuff. We're talking about the Holy Spirit being active. Then receiving the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed his spirit into them. They go, well, what happened at Pentecost? It changed them. That's what happened at Pentecost. Not that the Holy Spirit became active. The Holy Spirit became part of their lives. He'd always been active. He'd always been part of their lives. What happened at Pentecost? Baptism. Immersion in it. You come up something different. Holy Spirit changed them, came upon them with power and said, now you are my witnesses. You are my ambassadors. I change you. Go change the world. And what did Peter do? What was the first thing he did? He gave the first sermon of his life. And what was the net result? For those that like numbers? Three thousand people were added to the 120 tired, scared people that day. They said, is this the time when, when your kingdom's going to kick in and you're going to change the world? Jesus goes, sort of. Will there be fire? Sort of. Will there be a winnowing between those who want to believe and those who don't? Between those who say, what on earth is going on? And this is amazing. I'm drawn to this. And those who say, well, I must be drunk. Will there be a winnowing here? Will there be a, a separation? Will there be fire? Will there be change? Will people be changed? And Jesus goes, Yes, and none of that will be what you're expecting. And it starts with your 120 hearts that touch 3,000. How many millions have been changed? We sit there and say, we're such a small church. I keep praying that God will change Peoria, that God will somehow change Illinois, that God will somehow change our nation, God will somehow reach the world. But we're only so small. I mean, on a good Sunday, we're like 100 people. I mean, what can we, what can we do in that? I mean, we become this amazing church that does all these amazing things that we, the world becomes... You. Be changed. Let God figure out the rest. You. Change. It's kind of a powerful thing to be reminded that it's not just that at Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes. It's that at Pentecost the Holy Spirit said, and now I change you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. I thank you 
that you don't do things the way we want you to. Because invariably, what we want is something simple, something quick, and something that doesn't have to change us. And you keep saying, nope, that's not my time frame. I like simple, and I like complicated, and I absolutely want to change you. So I pray, Lord, help us to hear your wisdom, to hear your voice, to desire to be your people, your ambassadors, changed by your spirit, and help us to want to know him and see him in our lives. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.